Hello, my name is Thomas Berezovsky, and I'm the director of Two Journeys Ministry. If you find Andy Davis's content helpful and you want to help us disseminate free gospel-centered content, please prayerfully consider donating to Two Journeys. All end of your gifts will be matched up to $20,000. Please visit the donate page on twojourneys.org for more information on how to donate. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of our brothers and sisters in the past. Now, as we continue to make our progress through the amazing advance of the gospel, From the upper room in Jerusalem, even to the ends of the earth, over 20 centuries, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has been forcefully, powerfully advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And as we come now to today's section of the 2,000 years of church history that we are surveying, we are looking at a period of time from 1789 to 1914, missionary explosion in an ever-expanding age of progress. That's what we're talking about. As the centuries have passed, the world has become more and more complex, more and more diverse, more and more populated. So we can see as we look at earlier eras that we could cover a thousand years and not have as many topics to discuss as towards the end of the second millennium of church history, things are going to slow down because population is going up, the nation states are developing, more and more current events, and things just slow down in terms of um, the amount of things to cover. We could cover, uh, we could spend hours and hours talking about just 50 years. And so we're looking at a period of time in which so much has happened. Uh, The Reformation and the religious wars that followed Uh, ended forever. The medieval vision of Christendom, that welding together of church and state, denominationalism arose to take the place of the ideal of a single unified authoritarian church. Denominationalism embraced that there are various ways in which genuine Christians could express their convictions about doctrine, lifestyle, worship patterns, church structure, and they stopped trying to force their views on others by the power of the state. The official separation of church and state in the newly formed United States of America was affected by the First Amendment of the Constitution, which forbids the American government from making any law establishing a religion or preventing the free exercise thereof. So this law itself was pursued diligently by Baptists who had known little else than persecution over their entire history, uh, including the Anabaptist movement in Europe. So all of that was based on the essential concept of religious convictions being matters of individual heart convictions, which could never be forced by coercion external to the human heart by any governmental threat. Similar convictions were winning the day in Europe and eventually to the ends of the earth as well. What this means then is that the 19th century was staggeringly complex when it comes to Christianity with many interlocking themes. We could talk about the effect of politics, of the growth, 
the rise and fall of mighty empires and the effect that that had on church history. For example, the, the beginning with the French Revolution, um, July 14th, 1789, Bastille Day, uh, which leveled the power of the king, the nobility, the privileged class of Roman Catholic prelates in the name of liberty, equality, fraternity. We could talk about that and then how that led to the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, who imitated Charlemagne's Christmas Day coronation by the Pope in the year 800 with his own coronation on December 2nd, 1804, as the Emperor of the French. He crowned himself, however, took the crown out of the Pope's hand and put it on his own head, signifying his own vision of, uh, of being an autocrat, that his authority came from himself. We could talk about the impact of the Napoleonic era, the Napoleonic wars on, the, on uh, church and state, uh, but that would take uh, our entire time to go into details. You go into the empire that followed that, the British Empire. Uh, from that point forth, from the Battle of Waterloo on, it was really the British century politically with the, the spread of the, the, uh, the power of Queen Victoria and the, and the British Empire. The sun never set on the British Empire, they said at the time. The largest empire in terms of landmass in the history of the world. Um, and whereas Napoleon's empire is built on the agnostic, humanistic principles of the Enlightenment, uh, Christian faith and Christian values rode the crest of the wave of British imperialism to the ends of the earth. But the weaving together of political, military, and economic interests with those of the advancing kingdom of Christ made for certain inherent weaknesses in the British empire, as we've seen again and again in our overview of Christendom clear example of this ambiguity came in the hostility that the East India Company had to William Carey's missionary work in India. Another bitter example of the era were two opium wars that happened in the middle of the century in which Britain's superior military technology, granted by the providence of God, was used to defeat China and force trade concessions, legalizing the opium trade which enslaved thousands to soul-destroying addiction. When we get to heaven and we look back, we will get uh, Christ's actual perspective on the 19th century and the British Empire era, but we can't go into those things any further. We could talk about other develop de developments in European Christianity, like the claim established by Pope Pius IX at the First Vatican Council in 1870 of the doctrine of papal infallibility, in which the Pope when speaking ex cathedra, that is from the throne of papal authority, spoke perfectly as the mouthpiece of God. We could talk about some of that. We could, we could go over to, the, to North America, to the United States, and the rise of frontier religion in America, the Second Great Awakening, uh, under the dubious strategies of the Pelagian lawyer-turned-evangelist Charles Finney, who developed new measures manipulative new techniques of winning converts through applying the science of religious revivalism. He studied how revivals worked and applied it, and it's just a fascinating study. Well, we could talk about uh, the shameful rise of chattel slavery in America over American history, especially in the South, and the defense of it by Christians over many decades, as well as the courageous fight for abolition. Uh, during that era. Abolitionists in America and in England with William Wilberforce, uh, we could go through uh, that with great benefit. Uh, we could talk also during this era about the growing threat of science to religion by Charles Darwin's theories of evolution. The battle between science and faith 
seems to go on to this very day. So questions of origins of the human race, the relationship between sound biblical instruction and theology on the one hand, and true science continues to be a battleground. And we could talk about that uh, with uh, great benefit. Or we could talk about the rise of man-centered liberal, so-called liberal theology, which denied the inspiration and authority of the Bible, the battle against German higher criticism, which applied scientific principles to the texts of Scripture in the context of skepticism, seeking to unravel truth from mythology. Since the Enlightenment, these questions have been raised, and irreligious men like Thomas Jefferson had shredded the text of the Bible, leaving only what they thought the pure moral principles should have been. Friedrich Schleiermacher in Germany uh, sought to make Christianity appealing to its cultured despisers, but ended up arguing that God can only be experienced through feeling, not through reason. Albrecht Rischel uh, followed him in Germany also, rejected this approach and said Christianity is based on history, but not the miraculous history of the Bible. Rather, by modern methods of historical, scientific inquiry, the true story of Christ can be extracted. So Albrecht Rischel uh, denied the virgin birth and the Trinity, he pressed a Christian life of vigorous actions based on sound moral judgment. By the end of the 19th century, pure liberalism had taught the so-called fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man and denied the need for the atonement of sins and had pushed something called the social gospel of attending only to man's basic physical needs. How Christ raised up men like English Calvinist Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon at the end of the 19th century, who for years battled these false ideologies and theologies in the most exhausting fight of his life with what was called the downgrade ca uh, controversy, will be something we'll study when we get to heaven. So we could talk about all of those things, and they'd all be beneficial. Instead, with the time that we have here today, I want to focus on what I consider to be the greatest display of the glory of God in this age, and that is the explosive expansion of the true gospel of Jesus Christ by the courageous missionary efforts of countless men and women. Some historians of the Christian movement and Christian missions have called it the great century, the 19th century, the great century. Kenneth Scott Latourette, the Yale uh, church historian, says, never had any set of ideas, religious or secular, been propagated over so wide an area by so many professional agents maintained by the unconstrained donations of so many millions of individuals. So it was a, an explosion of Christian advance in the 19th century. When this era dawned, missionaries, so-called, for the most part, had been Roman Catholic, uh, mostly Jesuits, spreading that Jesuit vision of this, the semi-Pelagian gospel and, and Rome's power, political power, spreading that to worlds discovered by Roman Catholic explorers. Uh, Spanish explorers, Portuguese explorers, etc. Uh, those were missionaries. That's, for the most part, what missions was. Protestants did not really have a heritage of missions uh, before this great century. Um, there were some Moravians uh, that went down to the slave plantations in the West Indies. Um, but other than that, Protestant missionary efforts were scant. When this era dawned, the evangelical gospel reclaimed by the Reformation, could only be found geographically in Europe and the newly formed American states.
if we could put dots on the map, if you could look at the world map, uh, where in 1789 churches existed that preached the true gospel, those dots would be densely clustered in the British Isles, in the low countries of Europe, uh, various German regions, some in Central Europe like Bohemia, etc., some in Canada, many along the eastern seaboard of the new American nation where Whitfield and others had preached. But by the end of this era, 1914, evangelical Protestant congregations could be found all over the world. Dots would dot the map, map all over the world. And, and even beyond that, in the last hundred years, from, from 1914 to 2014 and beyond, it's exploded even further. So it's really quite an amazing advance. This amazing advance is the greatest story of this era. And it's one of the greatest stories of the glory of God in all of church history. Of course, it's not only one story, not one story only. It's a tapestry of many lives woven together who influenced each other. Countless stories, and we're going to find them out when we get to heaven. Most of the work uh, was done by obscure servants of God, men and women whose names we do not know or whose names have slipped off into obscurity but they will be reviewed and honored in heaven but for us in terms of protestant missions the tale must begin with one of the most influential sermons ever preached amazingly delivered by an obscure unlettered english cobbler named william carey it was on wednesday may 30th 1792, at the Friar Lane Baptist Chapel in Nottingham, England, Carey put an incredible challenge into this, one of the most influential sermons ever preached in church history, what came to be called the Deathless Sermon, based on the text Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. Its main points could be reduced into two headings, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And in it, he passionately exhorted his hearers to move out toward the evangelization of the lost peoples of the earth, expecting that the power of the sovereign God would grant abundant success and the great enlargement of the place of Christ's tent. You should look at the text in Isaiah 54 to see that language of expand your, lengthen your tent cords and expand the size of your tent because you're going to have more children basically, to make room for the millions who would be one. That's what Carey's sermon was about. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Now, earlier that year, William Carey had published a pamphlet uh, entitled An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen, in which he argued that it's the duty of all Christians to make strong missionary efforts toward peoples who had not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He swept away the standard arguments against missions, such as the great distance, the evil customs of the, of the people, the inherent danger, the difficulties of ongoing financial support, and the language barrier. He swept these things away and argued for the obligation that we have to move ahead in missions. Now, the interplay between England's expanding world empire and Carey's missionary vision is fascinating. Thus, the review of so-called secular history in heaven must be included because the two stories are woven together. The story of the growing kingdom of God is wrapped up in current events. In 1771, for example, the thrilling journals 
of ship captain James Cook's exploration of the islands of the Pacific Ocean were published in England. They electrified the people of England for many reasons. But William Carey read them with a vision for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. James Cook had a secular vision for the glory of England and for his own um, scientific achievements and things like that. But Carey read it with an eye to spreading the gospel. He made a globe out of leather, Carey did, and with tears coming down his face, he would use that leather globe to point to certain places in the world and say, these who live here are all heathens. They're heathens, he cried out. He deeply felt the obligation that he wrote about to use means to win the heathen. That is to find ways to do it, figure things out. And the means was included in his strategy, especially in the development of special societies, in his case, a special society, to meet the ongoing needs of missions, the Baptist Missionary Society. Carey had said to those staying behind in England, I will go down into the dark hole of heathenism, but you must hold the rope. So it's quite an image, isn't it, of a, of a cave explorer going down or down into a deep well. And he's totally relying on those who are not going down into the dark well to hold his rope for him. Holding the rope meant raising financial support, continual prayer, and the spreading of the vision for missions in England. Well, on June 13, 1793, Carey set sail for India with his very reluctant wife, Dorothy, and their four children and an English surgeon. Now, Dorothy was extremely ill-matched with William Carey. She was a fierce homebody who absolutely did not share her husband's vision and almost refused to go. Sadly, she spent most of her time in India raving in the next room, I think clinically insane, while Carey carried on his work. As a couple, they would have certainly been denied by most mission agencies of our day. And heaven's retrospect, when we get to heaven and look back, it'll teach us Christ's perspective on their marriage and the wisdom of William Carey bringing her on the mission field. But so he did, and God did bless Carey's faith with astonishing fruitfulness. Carey, uh, when he arrived in India, was hindered mightily, as I mentioned earlier, by the British East India Company who had been the sole ruler of India from Britain's point of view since 1763 and who felt that missionary work would hinder their single overriding concern, money, trade profits. They refused to allow Carey to live in Calcutta and he settled instead in Sarampur under the authority of the Danes, not under the English. There he settled and built an impressive missionary enterprise. He was joined in 1799 by William Ward, who was a printer, and Joshua Marshman, who with Carey formed the Sarampore Trio. Carey was a staggeringly gifted linguist. Though having received no formal education, he taught himself Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. He translated the Bible into Bengali, Marathi, uh, Hindi, Assamese, Sanskrit, he also translated parts of it into 29 other languages and dialects. He was, a, he was a linguistic genius. He had a passion for social justice. He led a bitter but ultimately successful fight against the Hindu practice of sati, the burning alive of a Hindu widow with her husband. But Carey's central passion was the winning of souls from the darkness of heathenism, of paganism, into the true light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though his work was not very successful at first, seeing only about 
700 baptized converts, the foundation had been laid for decades that would follow. Especially significant within India was his determination to train and send out nationals, Indians, to reach their own people and plant their own churches. But his greatest legacy lies in his general example to the Protestant world of the imperative of missions by those who had the true evangelical gospel. So Carey's Baptist Missionary Society was not the first and certainly not the only voluntary missionary society in the world. On a hot August Saturday in 1806, in Williamstown, Massachusetts, a group of five Williams College theology students led by Samuel Mills had been reading William Carey's inquiry and discussing the spiritual condition of the people of Asia. Suddenly a thunderstorm struck and these five students took refuge in a haystack. While they were sheltering there, they prayed for and committed themselves to the cause of foreign missions. After that first time, they continued to gather weekly for what they called the haystack prayer meeting. Arising from those prayer times, they formed the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. The first missionaries sent out by this board were Adoniram and Ann Judson. Sailing from Salem, Massachusetts, in February of 1812, they headed straight for Sarampore and William Carey's mission. Though they ended up in Burma rather than India, it is quite possible they never would have gone at all if it hadn't been for Carey. And the Judson's ministry in Burma resulted in 63 churches planted with over 7,000 converts by the time Judson died in 1850. Now, Adnarm Judson's level of suffering is something worthy of discussing, and we could talk about it another time. But he was a passionate and a powerful missionary in Burma, and God used him uh, to win to salvation thousands of Burmese ultimately. In the same spirit of courage and self-denial, thousands of other missionaries went out during the 19th century. That's why it's called the Great Century of Missions. And they went to sites all over the world to spread the true gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most significant of these missionary leaders was Hudson Taylor, uh, who pioneered the pattern of faith-based missions. This was the determination to rely solely on the provision of God for all the needs of himself and his missionaries in his mission. His vision for China was vast and courageous. On his first missionary journey to China, he noticed all the missionaries staying in the port cities protected by the British Navy. He traveled into the interior of China and saw the teeming multitudes of Chinese perishing in darkness with no one even attempting to reach them at all. And this deeply troubled him. When he returned to Great Britain at the end of his first journey, he was tormented by the contrast of the spiritual needs of these Chinese that he tried to minister to and the spiritual complacency of the congregations he spoke to. And so he was stirring up support in England, trying to arouse effectively slumbering English and Scottish Christians to their responsibilities to reach the inland regions of China with the gospel. And so he established China Inland Mission with a vision to go to the interior. And that was a very significant step forward in missions theory by the Protestant missionaries in the 19th century. And Hudson Taylor did all of it trusting in God. These missionary pioneers were just a few of those that laid down their lives for the gospel and they were the most well known. I could just as easily though tell of the great missionary explorer, 
David Livingston, who ventured boldly into the heart of the dark continent of Africa for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Or I could talk about John Patton, who courageously brought the gospel to the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Or of Mary Slessor, who gave her life, her astonishing boldness and her linguistic skills to the winning of souls in Nigeria. Or of Amy Carmichael, who served 55 years without a single furlough working with orphans in Tamil Nadu, India, and who looked on her life as a missionary as, quote, a chance to die, end quote, for Christ. Time would fail me, as the author of Hebrews says, to tell all of these stories, to even mention brief anecdotes from dozens of heroes and heroines of that century. Christ will review all of the dimensions and details of this great century of gospel advance when we get to heaven. We're going to learn of their sacrifices. We're going to learn of their service to the elect, unconverted elect, who were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world, but who are now, because of that missionary explosion, in heaven, glorious and worshiping Christ. I can't wait to get to know each one of them. So, as we look at the 19th century effectively, 1789 to 1914, many themes have crossed our minds here today, but the lasting image I want to leave with you is the incredible work of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, in moving, vigorously moving, the Protestant church from a few enclaves in Europe and in the United States to begin to reach the ends of the earth in the great century. The work is still in front of us. There's still more to be done. And so I want to challenge you, my hearers, to sacrificial action for unreached people groups of the world, to find ways to support missions in your own local churches, to pray for missionaries, to give money financially to the spread of the gospel, and to see if the Lord might even be calling some of you to leave behind a comfortable life here in your setting and to go so that those who are presently lost may spend eternity with Christ. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that there is nothing new under the sun, Whatever it is you are going through, there are Christians who have come before you who have dealt with similar struggles and through the power of Christ have overcome them, and you will as well. And we also know from Scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do, and they did them for the glory of God. And in the same way, God has gone ahead of you and has prepared good works for you to do for His glory. So go do them by the same power of the Spirit that was in each of them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.